are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm Rob McClure. Tactile, iridescent, organic. These words describe the music of Adjective New Music collective member, Jonathan Sokol. John is currently a member of the Baldwin-Wallace University Conservatory of Music faculty, teaches at the Cleveland State University, and has taught at the Brevard Music Center. In 2013, he was invited for a residence at the Malay Colony for the Arts, and since 2014 has been a resident composer with the Boulder Symphony Orchestra, which will premiere his new work, Everything All at Once, on May 7th. Our conversation focused on his pieces, Resident Songs, Palm, and What Trees May Speak. So I wanted to start by uh, asking you a few questions about your piece, Resident Songs. Um, I thought, I after listening to it, I thought it was extremely colorful with an extreme extreme economy of means of, or economy of materials um can you just talk about the your process of writing that piece uh, um that's that's a piece that is one of my favorite um out of out of many that aren't and i, I think your insight to those are apt um just uh the openness of the space, which I feel uh, tends to give uh, less to the material at hand. I wrote those during the course of composing another piece that I didn't want to write at all. <laughs> okay. Uh, so well, what, was, what was that piece? Or do you was, not want um, to name that one? Yeah, it's, a, it's another story completely. Um, but this was a nice escape piece and, and something I wanted to write um, for, for my friend and colleague, uh, Kaylee Butcher, who is a member of Quince. So I was at the Malay Colony for the Arts in May of 2013 when I wrote this. Um, it was collaborating with one of the other artist residents, a poet by the name of Davy Niddle. And I loved the way he wrote these poems and thought to myself, uh, I have to do this. So the composer who was selected um, for their monthly sessions at the, at the Malay Colony got a nice writing table outside. And that's where I went. I went there first thing the next morning and just kind of wrote intuitively, impromptuously. And that, that, was, that was it until the bees started coming around. <laughs> I had to go I back inside. That's, yeah, that's the problem with, uh, with working outside, I guess. <laughs> Uh, but, but it continued in this way. I knew I wanted to write something small and intimate, uh, definitely for the voice. And I chose violin on a whim. There's no other reason I chose that instrument um, other than on a whim. And I love writing for strings. If I have my choice, I'll write every piece to include one string instrument if I can. Because to me, they have the most wealth of timbre and color and, and uh, variety in their sound right. set. You're, so, you are, you're not a string player, are you? No, not at all. I okay. took violin for a semester and uh, was told by my orchestra conductor that although he thinks it's wise for composers to understand the instruments, he would never hire me for a gig. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but it helped, that's, I guess. That's very diplomatic. <laughs> right. At any rate, um, yeah, so, so I put a lot of attention and stress on the different types of sonorities that... Um, any instrument can make, and in this case, the violin. Um, but I paired that with not the same approach in the voice. 
they, yeah, that was actually I I was I was gonna ask about that because it seems like the the violin it's um, it's getting all this timbral treatment that the voice is not. So yeah, where how 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 did you make that choice or 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 why why does the voice not get timbrally treated? I think this stems back to my initial fear of writing for voice to begin with (laughs) Um, many years prior to this piece and one of many things that I think about when writing for voices if I'm gonna have trouble singing it um, maybe I shouldn't write it that way right along with all the other kind of technical things about uh, rhythm and inflection that I I try to think about um, it's kind of a natural approach to vocal writing and I thought it'd be interesting to offset that with something that's more atmospheric or more, um, you know, sonically challenging to have this mm-hmm. kind of very prominently melodic vocal part with something that's very uh, not. You, uh, in looking through your works list, you actually have a few pieces for voice and another non-traditional accompanying instrument. Now, I was going to say there's been a, a couple in the last year or two um, all of which, if I'm thinking correctly, have arisen uh, from my collaboration with Quince. Um, two of my recent voice pieces have been for Amanda DeBoer Bartlett, right. a sop- soprano in that group. And the first one I wrote was for her and Jim Fusick, the saxophone player. So I wrote a piece called Hymn Fragments based on text that Amanda wrote, mm-hmm. her own poetry. Um, and then Later that year, this was last year, I wrote um, a piece for her and Jesse Langan of uh, Del Niente. And, uh, the piece was called Basic Lands, and that's based on the, um, the very general playability rules for Magic the Gathering, because that's one of uh, Jesse's um, passions and uh, one of mine growing up. So, you know, we had some common ground there. And uh, the text there came from uh, prose an early 20th century geographical text that uh, I thought fit pretty well. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, neither of those instruments are things one might think of, of pairing with soprano or voice of any kind. But right. again, you know, the saxophone and the, um, the electric guitar are just so rich in their timbral possibilities. That mm-hmm. It's something that I would totally eat up. With, uh, with resident songs, you were talking about the was it was it a poet in residence at this colony as well? Yeah, yeah. Davy was one of um, the other residents there, and uh, there were six of us total: three writers. Davy was a poet, and he had a goal, I think, to write eighty poems while he was there, something like that. Oh my God! It's it's a three and a half week residency, and he did it. He totally did wow. it. Wow! But that's, I, had talk- I mean, that's that's a book or more, right? Yeah, it that's is. Poetry. It definitely is. Yeah. Um, wow. So he's very diligent, exceptionally smart, intelligent person, and um, really hardworking. And uh, I talked to him one night. I was like, has has anyone ever set your poetry to music? And he was really into the idea. No one had. I came back to my studio, and there were papers that had been slid under the door. And I said, all right, let's do it. I flipped through them. I I found the three or four that I really liked, and I, I got going. And the pieces to me like this really special thing because it would not have existed if neither of us were there at that same time. Can you talk about, with this piece, can you talk about 
specifically the your approach to the violin yeah um i think this goes kind of in tandem with some of the other violin writing i've been doing i have some music that hasn't been played before for solo violin or other um string pieces that have been played once or twice um but it's it's just a continuing exploration in my understanding of how the instrument works mm -hmm. not not that it's easy or difficult um but just things that make sense to me in my mind that I want to try out. Maybe that are non-standard um, double stops or harmonics or this or that kind of thing. But I feel that when I write for strings, I have a clearer idea of what I want than any other instrument when I'm given mm -hmm. that, okay. that chance. So I think violin was, a, like I said, a, a whim decision, but also a very natural one for me to make. It's it's actually um, you don't hear too many pieces where the for I mean if it is going to be for voice and and another instrument you actually don't hear too many pieces where the voice is lower mm. usually than the accompanying mm -hmm. instrument I thought that was you know, that was just sonically a a really really nice thing to explore as a listener yeah that you you don't often get you know usually. I mean, usually it's piano and voice and the piano provides an accompaniment that the voice soars above, but this kind of reversal of roles was, was actually really nice. And it, and in a certain way, it, it kind of, I don't know, it, it, it just, it flips, it flips your perception hmm. of how, how the voice functions and how the, how the voice is treated. Yeah, I like that. And it's not even something that was really on my mind when I wrote it. Well, that's um, great. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I, I really wanted to write a piece that played to Kaylee's strengths because I know her vocal quality, I know her aesthetic and her taste in music, and uh, just something that was really tailored specifically um, to her voice type. Yeah, I guess her being a mezzo, of course, and then uh, the violin, totally. Yeah, thanks, great observation.
I thought the ending was absolutely beautiful. Like, I, I just loved it. Thank you. I, I don't often talk about my music unless asked, but uh, to me, Resident Songs is one of the very few inspired pieces that I have in my portfolio. And uh, an anecdote is, um, it was premiered at Constellation in Chicago, and one of the other writers who was in Residence was able to make that performance, and, and his being there was, exceptionally important because he didn't hear any of the music as it was being written but he was present for everything else that was happening alongside the composition of that piece and to have someone there who was uh you know present during the creation of this and to hear its uh premiere and put into reality a really meaningful moment you said you were outside when you mm -hmm. were writing this so I'm gonna I'm gonna move to to your other piece now. Okay, sure. What trees may speak? I'm assuming it's recorded bird sounds. Yes, it is. I'm I'm yeah. I'm assuming you didn't bring a bunch of birds into the concert hall, <laughs> but that would be amazing. It would be something. <laughs> Have you seen this video of the uh, the French composer with the the zebra finches that go back and forth from the electric guitar to other electric guitars? Yeah, yeah. That's that's really it's like cool. My favorite thing I've ever seen, and I'm really jealous I didn't think of it first. Right. <laughs> And just being outside, did the did the natural sounds affect you in resident songs? And and how and then can you can you connect that with what trees may speak? Mm, they're totally different to me. I think. Yeah, actually, actually, when I was listening to the recording, I and, and please don't take this the wrong way, but I actually thought my iTunes had like shuffled past your third piece. And I was listening to something that I, you know, I I just never listened to before, but it was in my <laughs> iTunes because from what I've known of your work, which is admittedly been almost all your uh, all chamber pieces that I've heard of yours. Mm -hmm. But this piece is is a de it, I hear it as a departure stylistically and in terms of the material you're using as well. I mean, is that is that fair to say or or am I missing kind of a common link? I can go on and on about common links here <laughs> and what I feel is similar, but I think aesthetically you're on point. This is a more direct piece. It's more um, accessible, but I think they come from the same place. Sure. And um, the resident songs, just the fact that I like to be outdoors and have the chance to compose something outdoors is one aspect of writing. Um, but but this piece, What Trees May Speak, is indirectly about the outdoors, I suppose. The piece was first and foremost um, a combination of two things. One was um, my growing interest in uh, all aspects of avian life, which blossomed, really began at the Malay colony. So I guess there is a link there, even though it had nothing to do okay. with the writing of the pieces. Um, and it's particular for what trees may speak, it, it focuses on the, the population declination that's happening um, year to year. So the whole question that's being asked as an undercurrent is what happens when 
you know, there is no more migration or there's this kind of global silence because, you know, so many conditions are uh, disrupting bird populations. Right. In tandem with that was when I learned that um, Lee Hyla had died. And um, I never studied formally with him, but I was, um, I worked for him when he was chair of the department at New England. And um, consider him a mentor in that way. And he went to bat for all of his students. He went to bat for me for, for things, even though we weren't, you know, we didn't have a teacher-student relationship. Um, sure. And he sure. was that, that, that type of guy. So, you know, I, I held him in the highest respect. Um, it was very, very saddened at his passing. So I worked that into the piece, too, because I know to some degree, not to an exact degree, but uh, he followed the avian world also. So there was that nice common link uh, between him then and, and me now that I wanted to work in there. Okay. Fo I mean, following you on Facebook, like birds, birds are, are, a, big, are a big deal. So. <laughs> yeah. um, again, in addition to resident songs, um, birding became a nice escape from uh, the work that I was doing at that time in the Malay colony. And, you know, I couldn't have picked a better time. May in upstate New York is like migration heaven, really. Mm -hmm. So uh, I guess I had no choice after that. Do you feel like uh, you, when you're working, you often need those escapes? Those, I mean, whether it's, whether it's writing another piece that is completely unrelated to the to what you're working on or developing a a new interest a new hobby or something yeah i've often done that i've written two pieces in tandem quite often before and if i wasn't writing uh music i'd try my hand at prose or some other way to have a creative outlet and how do what, what are the, what are the results you know and <laughs> you know what i mean like if if you feel like you need an escape mm -hmm. from what you are doing does that mean you should not be doing it yeah that's a question and for the longest time um i felt a bit of a duality like oh i'm gonna have this type of music and this type of music it wasn't two pieces in the way you think of maybe a large piece and a chamber piece but right. but really aesthetically two different um, things which you're hearing um, in the two examples we're talking about now I've really tried to unify those over the years you know in my mind what trees may speak is a combination of, of some of these efforts here so now that I have another interest in addition to music that isn't music um, I think I feel more secure in the music that I am writing with being um, interested in in birds are you also taking that into your your compositional toolbox are you are you going the way of Messian and John <laughs> Luther Adams and you know or is or is it just or, or is it just a completely non-musical interest at this point it's been non-musical except for what trees may speak that was the only overtly uh -huh. um, inclusive piece up to date uh -huh. um, I wrote a piece at the end of 2012, beginning of 13, called Tsubame, which is uh, Japanese for swallow, um, based on a memory I had when I was in Japan, watching these swallows just ceaselessly flying in this corner of a park. And mm -hmm. I knew I needed to write a piece at that time that was kind of a high energy profile and, and constantly driving, like 
well, that's a good point of departure, but the piece isn't really about that. Um, it's just kind of the inspiration behind it. So I think aside from what trees may speak, I have no other interest at this point in combining you know, my interest in birding with music. In the in what trees may speak, I absolutely loved the middle part of the piece, actually, where it goes down to almost nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, just just a high harp, you know, some strings here and there. But it was a really great contrast to the full orchestra sound. And again, not something you hear very often. Mm. You know, when typically when a when a composer gets gets the chance to write for orchestra, they're like, oh, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to throw everything at, the, you know, these listeners as it's possible. I'm going to try everything big, huge sound. And, but to be able to take it down to almost nothing, that was that was a really, really nice moment. Hmm. Thanks. And, and this was kind of the crux of the whole piece. That whole section that started off with the, the more ambient uh, middle area was was what I heard first. That was okay. the idea. And I didn't know exactly what it was going to be other than here's this kind of droney thing with maybe some ambient gongs and uh, fragments of this melodic figure over top that breaks away into almost nothing because that's the kind of silence that uh, I wanted to impose on the listener of, you know, when all the bird song goes away, it all diminishes what's left. And Mm -hmm. that's not really a world that I would enjoy living in. Did that also, did that section also have a relation to uh, the passing of Lee Hyla? Yeah, it, it, it was kind of a, a residual acceptance. The bird, the last bird song we hear before the fade out into the harp solo is what's called an ivory-billed woodpecker, which um, 99.9% has been concluded that it, it's extinct. Um, mm-hmm. There was a sighting in 2004 or five that kind of got everyone looking again, but no conclusive evidence. So um, that that bird at that point in the piece was kind of me putting Lee into the music because he has a piece called Wilson's Ivory Build, which is about that bird. Um, and then what follows is that emptiness. So yes, yeah, you're right on point with that.
so now we can start talking about Palm. Okay. And for the first thing I w- actually want to know about Palm is what does the title mean? The title um, is more a reference to the palm of the hand. This kind of okay. uh, energetic connection between two people when palms touch or the palm of one person mm-hmm. is it's more of a subtle thing this kind of like electricity or or um, tingling or flow of, of some kind of connection that's where that title comes from in the in the opening of the saxophone you definitely get the tactile experience from the player and as a listener you feel that as well the mm. the the texture of the music is very tactile i think great that's my intent totally <laughs> right clearly you had a you had a concept for for the the title of the piece but d- is it also kind of about the the players as well how the the means of producing sound like for that saxophone for that saxophone uh, lick at the beginning you know it's it's basically like doing this on the instrument right that's right yeah i yeah, mean so there's I, a bit of palm that's, that, this is a bad thing to do for for a podcast because <laughs> no one can see what i'm doing right now but you know like fluttering your fingers over the keys right and and you know there, there's a there's an energy in your hands mm-hmm. that there has to be in your hands mm-hmm. to be able to pull off that pull off that gesture right and um you know the way that the pianist must do this later when those roles switch um, about three or so minutes into the piece and the pianist is on the inside um, again with the, the fast fingers just kind of scraping and pitching rapidly on the interior of the instrument right. absolutely yeah mm-hmm. yeah this this piece actually um, it reminds me in in certain places of uh, the first piece of yours I ever heard which was uh, these You're right for, yeah that, that uh, yeah for Barry Sachs and Tuba. And that was um, <laughs> that was where we first met at the, right. the 2012 BG New Music Festival. Mm-hmm. And I'm still blown away by that piece. And Palm reminds me of it from time to time because I think your music lives in this place be- a lot of times between sound and silence, between full sound production and kind of half tone, half air. Uh-huh. And, and I think this is how I'm relating to your to your the, one of your adjectives uh, iridescent uh-huh. you know it's something it's something that you can ex- you experience but you can't quite hold on to the sound it's 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 almost elusive in a way yeah no. the the sounds that that are in this piece and and resident songs and these and you know it's it's something that that I think makes your music very, actually very unique because there's this kind of, as a listener, I think we're, we're grasping and we, we want, we want to hold on to it, but it's just, it's almost impossible. Mm. It's like it slips through your fingers. The ideas of color transmuted in sound and, and that exist in some kind of uh, space, whether it's the physical space or the, the aural space, um, are very important ideas to me. Uh, so I think that necessitates, in my mind, exploring the instrument to its fullest capacity to get all of the sounds possible so we can create you know, the, the most complex uh, weaving that, that whatever instrumental combination present can achieve. 
living in the space between is that a goal is that a goal you put forth in the creative process or is that maybe a byproduct of the materials that interest you i think it's a byproduct um uh-huh. unless it's really securely a landmark of of say the form or the structure i have premeditated going in um then then usually i allow that space to evolve as naturally as it can through the course of composition Thank you. 
the last question I wanted to ask you um, was how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? I realize, it, yeah, it's it's a big question. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to force me to open the memory box. <laughs> um, in high school, I had started writing. And it was that type of writing that was so off-the-cuff intuitive that you couldn't help be absorbed by the joy of it. And I wrote a lot. I think I cataloged upwards of 30 or so pieces in high school, none of which exist anymore, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> we all have uh, those, right? <laughs> at some point, I decided it's probably a good idea to go to college, but what should I go for? And I thought I was decent at this music stuff. I should give it a try. Uh, so I took some post-secondary classes while I was a senior in high school, and uh, they worked out well. I felt I had a little bit of a you know, introduction to what it was going to be like, and I went for it. I was influenced heavily, as I think, you know, a number of uh, composers our generation, just by the more uh, popular music of different media, not so much the current classical music of that time, uh, but film and game and, and uh, whatever pop music was happening uh, were all initial sources of inspiration. I don't know that I ever wanted to go into film music, but I knew I liked writing and I wanted to learn how to do it better than I was at that time. That's actually, you, you brought up something that I hadn't really thought about, but when we, I mean, I think when a lot of us are starting out, we don't have any access to the music that is like currently being written. Like if you mm. if you look at uh, you look at the development of yourself as a composer, it's like okay, well I started in two thousand and whatever, and you look at the pieces that were being written around that time. There's, I'm. There's very little access because unless you are in a place like New York or Chicago or somewhere like that where there's just new music concerts all over the place, there's there's no way to hear it. In, until maybe now where you have stuff like SoundCloud and Bandcamp and, you know, it's things are out there. But I, I think when when we were starting out there there wasn't that so maybe do, do you think that is why a lot of us were looked to the stuff that was around us and and being created right now mm -hmm. yeah i can't imagine being aware of uh Haas's first two string quartets as a exactly. junior yeah. and senior in high school. Right. And, you know, I can't imagine if I was aware that it was something I would have been into at the time either. Um, I was taking prep lessons at, at the Cleveland Institute and my teacher then suggested I listen to a uh, Messian quartet. And I didn't get around to it, I think, until my freshman year at college. But even that one or two years gap, I thought to myself, I wasn't ready for this then in high school. Sure. And I think it's I think it's great now. Um, but I was I was a staunch traditionalist, you know. I was writing, I think, as 
a good majority of, of high school and incoming uh, collegiate students do with, with this kind of neo-romantic flair, but um, that just shows where the exposure and the interests lie. I think my first real breakthrough of what was happening wasn't until I was a grad student in Boston and there were exposure to uh, those types of ensembles that were constantly playing new music. And I said, oh, oh, I have been really getting my rep strong the last four years, but it is not indicative of what is happening right now. I think that, you know, that's for a lot for all of us. That's a big wake up call mm. when we finally figure out, like, what's what's actually happening right now? You know, because you go through college and the focus is on the focus is on the past. Mm-hmm. Even if it's even if it's 20th century, it's still on the past. Like I think very very few college students, even composers, unfortunately, get all the way up to the present in their in their formal academic. Training. <laughs> right. It's always a mad dash in the last week of class. Oh well, no, we're going to talk about this. Exactly. Um, oh, this is what's happening today. Here you go. <laughs> blah blah blah. <laughs> I make it a point in my introduction to composition classes. Um, all the listening we do is tailored specifically to the instrument we're studying individually at that time but it's within the last 25 to 30 years if i can help it and sometimes i stretch a little further just because there are some really rad pieces out there uh but but for the most part i'm trying to give the students what i didn't get as a student which is the exposure to what's happening now it's part of our job description whether it's written or not you know it's dependent upon us to to relay this information and, and be as much in the scene as we can, which can prove difficult sometimes too. And I don't know if you've felt this way um, since becoming you know, on the other side and teaching, but um, as a student, you're surrounded by colleagues who have so many different avenues of exploration, like, oh, did you hear this? Or are you going to this? But as a teacher, you have to be the one to provide that information sometimes. And with, with the lack of that support group in a way, I mean, you have your faculty colleagues, but not your, there's not like, 30 composition faculty members who are like gathering at one time and, and discussing things. Um, it can be a little difficult to stay on top of things unless you really make that effort, which isn't hard as you pointed out because we have SoundCloud and YouTube and God knows what else um, available all the time. Well, actually, I think I think everything is everything is available, you know, but because we live in this just sea of availability, even making a choice of what to focus on, it becomes crippling, mm-hmm. you know, and you you just end up running, you know, running back to, oh, well, you know, I like Stravinsky, so I'll, I'll go on YouTube <laughs> and listen to Stravinsky or something. You know, you know what I mean? Like and the and because it's just it's this sea of everything that's available and everything that's out there. And it's just it becomes just noise. Yeah, exactly. You know, not the actual music, but but the 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 process of trying to seek something out is just so formidable and it's great to have that you know to have a community of people where you can of you know relatively like-minded people where one person finds this one piece and introduces it to everyone and then another person finds this one piece and introduces it to everyone but like you say as a as a professor, you need to be all 30 of those people right. for your students. And you have, you have a right on point with this, this idea that I'm always thinking about, which is everything is so documented 
in several places. You know, a single piece or a single person could be found in multiple places over the, the internet. And I, I just have this really tense feeling all the time that the more present we are, the easier it is to be swept up in that that sea of information and just be forgotten completely. And and that's the thing. There needs to be a push like, oh, you might really enjoy this based on what I know about you. And then, you know, you can go off of the recommendations or the, the like aesthetics of composers or this. But, but if you're just kind of starting with a blank slate, it could take hours to find something that is relevant to your interest. I'm, I'm gravitating more towards composers and performances that can't be documented Mm. you know because it it just seems like you know every every time we put a piece out there it's going to be recorded you're going to put it up on whatever and and there it is Mm -hmm. but what about these what about these pieces that you know they live they can only live spatially so it's not easy to record or they can only live in a place where it's uh it's just a a terrible recording environments like outside uh-huh. or or you know these these multi uh, multimedia things where you th- there's just too much information to successfully uh, document and I actually think that those are some of the experiences that have stuck with me uh-huh. the most yeah because there you can't just go on YouTube and and listen in your spare time you you have to be there and it really adds value to the performance or to the experience yeah imagine trying to just sit at home even if you have a great surround system and listen to john luther adams and just soak in the sound when you're not in a, a viable space whether it's outdoors or indoors it's it's yeah and actually you you went to that performance at bg right that in the yeah and i was uh i they they got me they uh roped me into playing it and i was so glad that they did because um i was i was uh, giving a lecture to my to my uh, electronic music students uh yesterday about uh spatial music and how that this isn't really a new idea with electronic music it's been going on for a while but uh, this really, rec- you know, relatively recent piece in Ixuit, um, it, and I told them about my experience. It was the loudest thing I have ever heard in my life. In in that, and unfortunately, we had to do it in a concert hall because because of the weather. Right. But it was just so loud, and it was amazing. It, it was. was the 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 kind of loud you you feel across your entire body. Absolutely. Yeah, and that experience is is with me for the rest of my life. Yeah, same here, and and that's that's really great that you were part of the performance aspect of that, and, and from the listener aspect, there was just just total sense of relief and vindication when everything was over, and you let the the resonance escape your body, and you're just sitting there in pure bliss after being hammered down for seventy minutes of joy. Right. Ha- hammered that's that's the best <laughs> that's the best way to describe it oh I, I thought it was fantastic um yeah yeah so yeah you can't capture an experience like that um <laughs> through a, a, a two-channel recording yeah is that something have you, have you thought about that that avenue in, in your own music a little bit um i'm i'm open to the idea uh, yeah. 
I like to think of specific spaces when I do write, um, if I have the opportunity to. The thing is, we're, how, how old are you, John? 34. 34, okay, I'm 31. So we're both relatively young in, mm -hmm. in terms of composers. I don't actually think we can do something like that yet because our careers are so dependent on documentation. Uh -huh. And when you, when you spend, you know, however, however long you're going to spend to write the piece and however long you're going to, all this effort to put the piece on and to get a venue. And, and if you can't document it, well, then it's like it never happened. Right. And that's, is... that's a big chunk of your life that's just gone that you could have worked on something that, you know, could have a performance in a, in a traditional concert space and you have a program and you have a recording and you can publicize it. And it's like, it's like all these things that I actually see composers doing this kind of stuff that are older, uh -huh. that have already, like, are already established. And I look at this as like, wow, I really want to do that. I just don't think that it's the best idea right now like I should really focus on doing all the stuff it takes to to get to that place where you can just say, all right, fuck it. I'm going to write this. Exactly. You know, and that, that thought came I'm to mind write. earlier um, when, when this portion of the conversation started. I was like, yeah, but the composers we're talking about were probably like John Luther Adams or Haas, where, you know, if you're in a place experiencing total darkness for a period of time, you can't document that kind of thing. But look who they are and what they're doing and where they're at, yeah. you know. Uh, they don't have to prove to a board or a committee that they're active in their field, and and exactly they yeah. don't need to submit you know <laughs> three recordings for this festival or residency or or school or anything. So yeah. yeah, they can do whatever they want, and and one day so will we. But we have a great deal of freedom as it is now, I would say. 